In this episode, we speak with David Ratner, CEO of Hyas, a cybersecurity company leading the charge in the war against attacks of all kinds, including ransomware, supply chain attacks, phishing, and Trojans. David's career spans various areas of software and technology, from writing code for some of the first and largest mobile mess and messaging systems, to scaling, growing, and exiting multiple venture-backed, private equity-owned, and public software companies. Before joining Hyas, David was the CEO at Realm and CEO and president at OpenWave Messaging. He earned his PhD and MS in computer science at UCLA and his undergraduate degree in mathematics and computer science at Cornell University. David was recognized as one of the top 50 SaaS CEOs of 2023 by the Software Report. I am your host, RJ Lumbach. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to follow. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm honored to be here, so thank you. First off, congratulations on being named a top 50 SaaS CEO of 2023. I think that's a remarkable accomplishment. And one thing I did notice that you are fairly involved with the realm of leadership and mentoring other CEOs. Can we start off with one key insight about leadership and what you think is the most important thing to remember and have top of mind as you're leading an organization? One of the biggest things that I continue to tell everybody is leadership is not about having the answer. Leadership is about putting together an organization and having a culture and processes so that your organization can get to an answer in an efficient, effective way. And so being the effective leader doesn't mean you need to know everything about everything, but you need to know how to surround yourself with people who complement your skill sets. You need to make sure that you surround yourself with people who are not purely yes men or yes women and may actually have a different opinion. I'm a firm believer that part of the way you get to the best answer is through diversity of thought and diversity of opinion. And part of your goal as a leader is actually to encourage that in an effective way. There's a time for discussion. There's a time for making a decision. And then there's a time for execution. And so being an effective leader means you need to sketch that out on how that rolls out across your team so that you can have a discussion, you have diversity of thought, you figure out how you get to the best answer in an effective way, but then regardless of whether everyone agrees or not, we, we you know, commit and move forward. I was looking at your background. I noticed you have like a combination of two important facets. One is that you have a deeply technical background and expertise, both educationally and professionally. And then on the other side to it, you have experience in leadership across different types of companies, I guess, within the tech sphere. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe that combination has helped you and potentially with other leaders, if they're maybe strong on one side or the other, you know, how you kind of can balance that out? Yeah, look, I was certainly very fortunate in my career. 
Uh, I started off, you know, after getting my PhD in computer science in a very highly technical role where I was writing code and, you know, solving problems at the code level for clients around the world. I developed this reputation of twofold. One is I was the technologist who could explain technology to non-technical people. That helped propel me through my career. The second was I was got known as the problem solver. And initially it's problems in the code, and then it was problems at an architecture level, then it's problems at a system level, then it's problems at an organizational level, then it's problems, you know, and, and the scope of the problem became bigger and bigger as I had the opportunity to go through my career. We all look back at previous mentors that uh, had a profound impact on our career, and I won't mention anyone by name, but one of the best mentors was a former Procter & Gamble brand manager. and. I taught him technology and he taught me business. And, and that is one of the biggest things that helped me go forward. And so to come back to your question, having the notion of how do I solve problems and being able to apply that in various different areas, I think has been a huge help to me in terms of how I go about thinking about things. Yes, I typically come back. I, I, I am an engineer by trade. I like to figure out an answer and move forward. And, you know, certainly my son, when he went through college, some of my best days were helping him with his computer science homework. But you know that notion of how do you solve problems? How do you think about figuring out a solution? That has significantly helped me regardless of what the scope was, whether that was a marketing problem or a financial problem or a technology problem or a client acquisition problem or a go-to-market problem or what have you. And, you know, and I, I would encourage people, if you are a good problem solver, Think about how do you solve problems? What's the process you go through to solve that problem? And how do you apply that in other disciplines and other related areas? Excellent. So let's now dive into Hias and your journey there, because it doesn't seem like your entire career was in cybersecurity. Maybe no. you touched on it at certain points. So how you came to the company and then telling us a little bit more about what the company does. Yeah, look, I am not the 20-year cybersecurity veteran. I've certainly did a lot in the early days in and around email and messaging and SMS and spam and all those kinds of aspects. But you're right, I'm not the 20-year cybersecurity veteran. I was running a Kosla-backed company, which I sold to MongoDB in 2019, and took some time to figure out what did I want to go do next. I do a couple of things. One is I create a couple of intersecting Venn diagrams. What am I good at? What do I like doing? And what will people actually pay me to do? Right? Because you need to understand all three of those, right? And I identified three areas in and around emerging technology that I thought were really interesting. And cybersecurity was one of them as you know, we develop more and more smart devices, as we become more and more reliant on you know, computers absolutely in everything, all these different kinds of things. I've always been interested in the cybersecurity field. And so that was one of the three areas that I was focused on. I kind of did my search. I talked to people in all three of those areas that I had identified. And I knew the Microsoft or M12 venture team. I had coffee with them and they said, look, we just invested, you know, our Series A in this really interesting company called Hyas. And, you know, we probably need a different CEO and a different leader to take it to the next level. There's a lot of examples of startup companies that have a great idea that get it going, but need an execution expert on how you're going to go drive it forward. Taking it from 
zero to one is very different than taking it from one to five and five to 10 and 10 to 50. And one of the areas that I have excelled at time and time again, independent of exactly what technical discipline is figuring out how to execute, balancing the notion of technology and go to market, figuring out how are we going to go to market? Where are we going to go to market? Where does the technology need to go in support of that? And actually driving and executing through that. And one of the biggest problems that many startups have is what I call shiny pebble syndrome. And here's a shiny pebble. Let's go over there. Here's a shiny pebble. Let's go over there. And so I was super excited about what Hyas was doing. They showed me a demo of what they could do. I said, this is amazing. They told me stories of how they had helped various organizations, how they got some of their initial clients. I had never heard of a 20-person company that kind of had the kinds of clients that Hyas had. And so I was super excited about the opportunity and met with the entire board, jumped at the chance, and it's been a great ride ever since. I'd like to go back to the shiny pebble analogy you provided. So I understand the temptation to immediately jump towards pursuing something that will be maybe monetarily rewarding in the near term. How do you focus the strategy and then focus the organization on a good long-term objective? So there's a little bit of mixing of data and gut instinct. You can't go 100% on data alone because then you're going to be in analysis paralysis. And part of anything is I have a thesis and I'm going to kind of go continue to prove this out. But if you go entirely on gut instinct alone, that's when you constantly are changing your path and, hey, well, maybe we should go try this. Hey, I thought of a new idea. Maybe we should go try this. And so what's super important is balancing those two, having enough data to understand what's going on being able to complement that with a a strong thesis and your gut instinct of, I've been in the market, I've seen these things, I've talked to these customers, this is where we need to go. And then holding that sacred, right? Yes, there are times to make pivots, 100%. And almost every company in its existence has made various different pivots, some of which were successful and some of which weren't. What's super important is, number one, not to pivot too often. And two, again, when you do pivot, It's a combination of data and gut instinct, right? You shouldn't pivot entirely based purely on gut instinct. And if you wait for all of the data to be 100% correct, and this is exactly what we should go do, you're probably a little bit too late. One of my mentors, a different one, used to say to me, David, he goes, it's better to do um, nine out of 10 things well than five out of five right. And I was always like, what do you mean by that? Isn't it better to do everything right? And he's like, no, no, no. You should always have a bias for action. And he said, look, it's, you know, if you know you need to go in that direction, just start going. And if you need to be five degrees to the left or five degrees to the right, you'll figure that out as you're going, but you can't figure that out without going. You know, there's a difference between I need to go that way and I need to go that way. So figure out generically which way you need to go, but then have that bias for action and go. And at each step, combine the data you're gathering with continued refinement on your gut instinct, but keep the company focused on this is where we're going. This is why we're going there. We're going to pivot slightly here, slightly here, but this is where we're going and this is what we're all about. Yeah, I'm really curious in your early stages when you came over to Hias in 2019 and you were maybe absorbing all the information coming from the company, the teams, and trying to formulate your strategy and you have this bias towards action, 
did you get to a point where you felt like, okay, I got all the information I need. I'm going to go with my gut and here's what we're going to do. Was there this tension of like, I got to decide now and start moving? I'd say with each company I've gone and done, the process has perhaps gotten a little bit faster. You need to make decisions relatively quickly on people, on processes, and on what we're doing. Because when you join a net new company in, in whatever role, whether you're the CEO or you know whatever leader you are, there is you know an expectation of, okay, what's going to be different and what are we going to go do? You have a, I'll call it a limited window of, you know, here's what we're going to go change and here's how we're going to go do that. If you walk in on day one and you say, here's what we're going to go do, it's very hard to get buy-in because people are like, well, you don't even know our company. You don't even know. So I came in, spent a good couple of weeks meeting as many people as I could, understanding the products as well as I could, talking to board members, talking to clients, talking to customers, talking to the market, all those kinds of things. But then literally within a couple of weeks, I'm like, this is what we're changing. Here's how we're going to go move forward. It started with how we were running our internal meetings. It started with how we're going to run our board meetings. It started with how we're going to communicate. And it started with, you know, what people do we need and how are we going to go drive this forward? Some of which, you know, was observation by me in those first couple of weeks. Hey, here's what we need to change. This isn't working. This is what we need to go do. Part of it, even, you know, a discussion with board advisors and other people. They're like, look, you know, David, what do you want this company to be? Where do we want this company to be in 18 months? And how do we get there now? And all those different kinds of aspects, right? But you have that limited window in the beginning to go make changes. Generally, it takes, you know, a good couple of weeks of interviews across the board, you know, listening to everybody in order to then figure out this is the path forward and this is what we're going to go do. Now, for the benefit of our audience, highest plays in cybersecurity. There's many cybersecurity companies out there. You know, we could probably draw up an ecosystem and see where each company fits and what their point solution is or their platform does. Uh, can you tell us, like, what Highest does and like who's its target customer? Highest today sells into large and small enterprise governments and various partners: MSSPs, MSPs, MDR resellers, all those different kinds of aspects. You're right. There are 7,000 different cybersecurity companies out there. Highest wanted to take a different approach. And while many cybersecurity companies out there are talking about how do I block every attack? How do I stop them from getting in? I'm going to argue that number one, that's not the world we live in anymore. And number two, those solutions don't work. If they worked, we wouldn't read about a new breach every single day. Right? We wouldn't read about new attacks happening every single day. The world is shifting from what used to be, how do I prevent them from attacking me? How do I build a wall and keep the marauders out? To how do I make my business, my operation resilient against the onslaught of attacks that I know are going to happen? And so Hyan sat there and said, look, how do attacks work? The first step in every attack, regardless of how they break in, is they plant the digital spy inside your enterprise. And that digital spy says, I'm alive. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to explore? What data do you want me to steal? Like, if you manage to fish Sally on her laptop, great. But you don't want to encrypt Sally's laptop. You want to go find all the data that exists and explore the organization. And so you need to send instructions back and forth between the digital spy you planted inside the enterprise 
and the bad actor who's outside the enterprise. The bad actors do this with infrastructure on the internet called command and control. And the most interesting thing is that that command and control has to be set up before the attack is ever launched. And so Hayes said, instead of trying to figure out how each new attack happens, because the bad actors constantly change how they break in, why don't we focus on being the expert in adversary infrastructure? The expert on the command and control side, because that side has to be set up before the attack can be launched. And so if we see the buildup in advance, I can now know what's going to happen before it happens. Mm -hmm. And so Hyas became the expert in adversary infrastructure. We gather data. We have an adversary infrastructure platform, which we use to power all of our solutions and therefore allow our clients to get proactive against what is going to happen and actually really drive that operational resiliency rather than I hope what I have stops them at the four walls. Mm -hmm. So you're not as focused on you know the perpetrator getting into the system. You're more concerned about, okay, if they get in, this is how they're going to move around and we're going to detect that and have so infrastructure to block it. You can certainly use a lot of highest solutions to stop a bad actor from getting in. And a great example is, you know, we'll go back to Sally and being fished. You know, you get the email, you have a link, you go to click on it. And Hyas says, no, 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 I know that that's adversary infrastructure. You shouldn't click on that link, right? And so I'll prevent that attack from ever happening, right? But we also recognize that breaches will occur. And any organization that thinks they won't be breached is lying to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that first step when they do get breached is that digital spy that reaches out to their adversary infrastructure. That's something that Hyas can sit there and say, look, this communication shouldn't be happening. This communication is anomalous. And let's shut down this communication before that bad actor explores your organization, before the bad actor steals data, before they do data exfiltration and encryption and all these other kinds of things. And so the approach of using adversary infrastructure not only can help prevent attacks, but actually can make your organization resilient against every new attack that comes out, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to stop that supply chain attack. How do you know if the laptop that you just purchased for your organization came pre-configured with a virus on the chip, right? Those kinds of things are incredibly difficult, right? You know, North Korea might pay an employee $100,000 to plant malware inside your organization. Those kinds of things are incredibly difficult. Right? We read about new zero-day attacks every week. But those are incredibly difficult to prevent, right? So bad actors are going to get in. The highest approach of focusing on the adversary infrastructure that they use to command and control and direct their attacks can not only prevent them from getting in, but can make your organization resilient against those breaches when they do happen. Now, let's uh, switch over into scaling. And you know, yeah. you've been very successful with your prior company, Realm selling, you know, scaling it and then quickly scaling it and then selling it to MongoDB. Have you been able to kind of use a similar strategies and tactics in order to rapidly scale highest? And what's the biggest challenge in scaling? So I've had the good fortune of being able to be involved in a lot of different companies. First, there is no one single cookie cutter approach. And I know some colleagues and some individuals who every time they go to a new company, this is the team they take with them. And here, here are the five people that I take with me from each company to each company. While I have people that I love working with and would absolutely work with again, 
each new company has its own challenges. And so you need to get involved in the company first before you understand, you know, do I need Peter or Paul or Mary in order to come and join me in order to help solve these problems? And so there is no single cookie cutter approach to how do I scale and how do I grow this company? Every company has its own culture, its own idiosyncrasies, its own facets, its own areas where it's successful and its own areas where it needs to grow. What I like to do in order to scale a company is really roll up my sleeves and understand everything at the ground level. Then you can take a step back and figure out, okay, what do I actually need in order to scale this and grow it? And mm -hmm. so, you know, what we needed at Realm in order to grow that and sell it to MongoDB is very different than what we needed at Highest in order to scale it and grow it. But none of that happens without really getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves, and really understanding what are the key issues that we need to go solve that'll have the biggest benefit. Mm -hmm. And how have your investors played a role in the organization? And to what degree is their involvement? Certainly at highest, really fortunate to have a great set of investors. And they've been incredibly supportive of the journey we've been on and continue to be incredibly supportive of what we are capable of doing, what we are doing, and where kind of 2024 and 2025 will bring highest. So they love the kinds of things that we're doing. Some of the investors give me great advice on financial topics, on go-to-market, those kinds of things. Some of the investors certainly help with introductions, you know, with topics of strategy. And, you know, like we talked about at the start, surrounding yourself with a diverse team in order to complement your own skill sets. You know, I've had the ability to, as we went through our Series B, pick who was going to be some of our investors, pick who was going to be on our board, and have the ability to build a team that really had a complementary set of skills. And so I have the financial advisors on the team. I have the technology advisors on the team. I have the go-to-market people on the team. I have the industry experts on the team. And so that has allowed us to tap into a set of resources that might not have been available to us otherwise. Mm -hmm. We're coming up on the tail end of our conversation. I'd like to close with two questions. The first question is, can you tell us about a person who has had a profound influence on you? There are a lot of people who have had a profound influence on me. I talked about the former Procter & Gamble brand manager who, you know, I was the engineer going through engineering ranks and he helped me shift over to running product management, running business units, and, and, and really growing from that. I remember two things he told me uh, that he was coaching me on about giving presentations. And he said, David, he goes, you're an engineer. The first thing you do with every presentation is you start seven layers too deep, and then you get deeper. You need to think about your audience. He goes, second, David, he goes, you talk too fast. And he goes, you need to start off really slowly because you always get faster and faster right? That had a profound impact on me. You know, I mentioned, you know, one of the mentors who, you know, talked about the bias for action. He was the COO at one of the companies I worked for. And he had a number of very colorful stories that he would tell, but he had a profound impact on how I think about running teams and, and driving forward. The CEO of one of my other companies, to be honest, sometimes, you know, the profound impact isn't necessarily a positive thing. You know, he gave me some harsh coaching at, during a performance review. 
that you know still sticks in the back of my eyeballs that I still think about five and six years later of, okay, how have I addressed that and how am I moving that forward? And sometimes it is that tough love that's needed in order to really push you forward kind of stuff. And so I definitely have had the good fortune of having a number of people that I look to as mentors to help shape my career. Not every single one of them was always a super positive experience, but in retrospect, they helped make me into the person I am today. Excellent. Last question. Can you tell us about a charity, cause, or other endeavor that you're passionate about? Yeah, super passionate about the environment. I had the good fortune of growing up in California. My parents took us into the Lake Tahoe area every summer. We would go backpacking and camping um, through an area called Desolation Wilderness. I've been there so many times. I don't need a map anymore. I can go explore it. You know, I know where I am. I go off trail, I, all those kinds of things. I had the good fortune of, you know, every summer then being able to bring my kids into the mountains as well. And there's a particular lake in Lake Tahoe called Fallen Leaf Lake, which we would go to every summer. And the kids saw it as their favorite vacation. And so it kind of continued that tradition. But I really do believe that in the environment, I believe that we have opportunities through technology to help positively affect the environment in a variety of different ways. And it's one of the things that I think we need to look for in the future because we do only have one planet. We need to figure out how to sustain it in a variety of different ways. Excellent. That's a good note to end on. Well, David, I want to thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.